Well, good morning and welcome to uh, the Cato Institute. Those of you who are here in the Hayek Auditorium and I welcome those of you who are watching online as well. Uh, my name is Patrick Eddington. I'm a policy analyst in civil liberties and homeland security here at the Institute. And uh, my co-host, uh, Adam Bates of our criminal justice team will be leading a discussion on our second panel later this morning. As our time is limited, uh, my scene setting remarks will be brief so we can get to hear from our outstanding first panel here. Our topic today is countering violent extremism uh, in the Trump era, although we'll probably uh, go back in time just a little bit in order to give proper context. CVE as a concept is controversial for many reasons, but CVE-like policies have been implemented in the past in this country under different names or guises and aimed at different groups, political, ethnic, and even gender-based. In the post-9-11 era, the Obama administration settled on the term CVE in the context of attempts to identify and prevent Salafist terrorists from achieving a repeat of the 9-11 attacks. But the Obama-era CVE program, which began in 2011, was controversial from the outset for its virtually single-minded focus on Arab or Muslim American communities as the sole source of potential domestic terrorist or mass murder threats. Subsequent revelations by The Intercept and other media outlets of federal surveillance targeting Arab and Muslim American leaders, including then GOP House state candidate Faisal Gill in the Commonwealth of Virginia, only underscored the fundamental bias in federal domestic counterterrorism programs in general and CVE in particular. The Trump administration's de facto Muslim ban codified in Executive Order 13780 as well as related immigrant and visitor social media information collection initiatives by the Departments of State and Homeland Security are clearly elements of the Trump administration's CVE or counterterrorism programmatic approach. Today we're going to examine what federal authorities are doing regarding CVE, the scientific basis for claims being made about CVE concepts and programs, and the real-world impact CVE has on communities in the United States. And I am absolutely delighted that we have such a distinguished panel of experts with us to explore this important and very timely topic. Uh, second from my left is Dr. Alice LeCicero, who is a board-certified clinical psychologist, author, and researcher. Long an advocate of human rights and racial justice, Dr. LeCicero is currently president-elect of, of the Society for the Study of Peace and Conflict, a division of the American Psychological Association. She has addressed in her research and scholarship some of society's most vexing challenges, including sustainability, racial justice, and pathways towards establishing peace. As co-founder and president of the Society for Terrorism Research, she traveled to Sri Lanka during the Civil War there to study children's perspectives on the tsunami, the war, and child soldiers. She reported on that work in the book Creating Young Martyrs, Conditions That Make Dying in a Terrorist Attack Seem Like a Good Idea. Following the Boston Marathon bombing, she researched the Zarnea brothers and reported on that work in Why Good Kids Turn Into Deadly Terrorists. Dr. LeCicero's clinical work has focused on refugees and asylum seekers. She is the 2016-2017 visiting scholar at the Wright Institute in Berkeley, California, where she works on the Sanctuary Project. Earlier in her career, she was a faculty member at the Center for Multicultural Training and Psychology at Boston Medical Center at Tufts University and at Harvard Medical School. To my immediate left is Dr. Heidi Ellis, who is currently the Director of Refugee Trauma and Resilience Program at Boston's Children's Hospital and an Associate Professor of Psychology in the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. 
Dr. Ellis studies refugee youth mental health with particular emphasis on understanding trauma exposure, violence, and how the social context impacts developmental trajectories. For more than a decade, she has built a community-based participatory research program with Somali refugees, investigating the role of discrimination in refugee youth mental health, and developed and evaluated a school-based mental health intervention for Somali refugee youth. In response to national concerns that a small number of Somali refugee youth have traveled overseas to join violent extremist organizations, Dr. Ellis has also investigated how experiences, <clears throat> how post-resettlement experiences may lead some youth to be more vulnerable to violent extremist ideology. Through a research faculty development pilot grant, she, has, she identified that trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder, and social marginalization place youth at risk for greater openness to violent extremism, and she is building on those findings through a multi-site international longitudinal study examining the role of trauma, mental health, and social bonds in diverse developmental trajectories of young Somalis, including violent extremism, gang involvement, criminality, and positive civic engagement. Dr. Ellis received her BA from Yale, her PhD in clinical psychology from the University of Oregon, and completed a postdoctoral fellowship at Boston University School of Medicine. And finally, Faisa Patel, who serves as co-director of the Brennan, Center's, the Brennan Center's Center on Liberty and National Security. She has testified before Congress opposing the dragnet surveillance of Muslims, organized advocacy efforts against state laws designed to incite fear of Islam, and developed legislation creating an independent inspector general for the New York Police Department. And for those of you who don't follow the NYPD, boy, did they need an inspector general. FISA has authored numerous reports during her time at the Brennan Center, including one this year on CVE, which I'm sure she'll discuss. She is a frequent commenter uh, on national security and counterterrorism issues for media outlets such as the New York Times, the Washington Post, The Economist, The Guardian, MSNBC, Al Jazeera, NPR, and the list literally goes on. And she's also published widely in academic outlets as well. Before joining the Brennan Center, Ms. Patel worked as a senior policy officer of the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons in The Hague and clerked for Judge Sidwa at the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. Born and raised in Pakistan, Ms. Patel is a graduate of Harvard College and the New York University School of Law. We're going to uh, open uh, this up at this point for FISA to make some opening remarks here. Uh, and kind of give us a little bit of an update on where things stand with regards to federal CVE. Bye, over to you. Thank you very much, Pat. Um, and thank you to Cato for um, hosting this conversation today, which I think uh, has never been more important uh, as, as things have been developing pretty quickly in this administration as well. I'm going to back up a little bit um, and talk about, you know, what is CVE, what is CVE in the U.S. particularly, um, and how does the new administration change uh, what we understand about CVE. So the term is sort of thrown around pretty loosely, and uh, often, you know, when somebody wants to make the point that we should have a less um, repressive uh, response to terrorism, they'll say, well, why don't we do countering violent extremism programs? And it's often pitched as this kind of, you know, softer alternative to, uh, to spying, to informants, to very, um, to criminal prosecution uh, leading to heavy penalties. But what exactly is CVE? What do we mean when we talk about that? So when I talk about it, I think about it as having sort of three components. Um, 
and I think they're problematic to different degrees. Uh, the first one is what I what are sort of like the social economic benefits model of CVE. This model rests on the theory that the reason people become terrorists is because they don't have enough opportunities um, to progress economically, and this sort of translates into programs such as we see this in, in Minneapolis, for example, where uh, there are programs which are meant to help Somali youth get internships, get jobs, get training, all, you know, good things uh, which are no doubt helpful for uh, the Somali youth and for those communities. Uh, but there's no real link that's been demonstrated as to, you know, either economic disadvantage or feeling uh, sort of unsettled in your environment as causing terrorism per se. Um, I mean, it's kind of obvious, right? There's a lot of poor people in the world. They don't all become terrorists. You don't need, and you don't need a study to demonstrate that, I think. Um, the second uh, part of CVE is uh, what I call intervention programs. And these are programs that basically say, well, you know, we can figure out who's vulnerable to terrorism, <clears throat> Or, and, and kind of try and intervene at an early stage and divert them to pathways that are more productive. Um, there are a couple of implicit assumptions in these programs which I think are worth exploring. The first is that there are visible signs of radicalization, which is sort of the terminology that is used, so that there's some kind of pathway towards terrorism is often sort of visualized as a triangle or, you know, with sort of terrorism at the apex and people like a broader group of people narrowing up to the individual terrorists or a series of steps or pathways, something like that. Um, and the idea is basically, well, you know, Along this way, there are these steps. We can figure out what these steps are, and so we can figure out the, the, the smaller pool of people who is vulnerable to becoming terrorists, and we can intervene. And we can identify these people, and we can intervene. The problem with that um, premise is that it's not true. <laughs> so basically, when you look at a terrorist population, right, and you work backwards, you say, okay, you know, I've got, you know, misters A, B, C, and D, and I'm going to work backwards and figure out what their trajectory was and how they got here. You see it now sort of in, in the wake of Las Vegas, right? Like, Everybody in the media is trying to go backwards and figure out what led this guy to this horrific act. And that is a perfectly reasonable thing to do. The problem comes when you then take this small subset of people and the steps that they have gone through, and you say, right, those are now predictive of somebody becoming a terrorist. So take one, one issue, you know, which I think, which is something that, you know, I care deeply about, which is domestic violence, right? So one of the things that you've, you may have noticed this coming up to the surface in, in recent stories involving mass shootings is that the shooter was often known to have mistreated his girlfriend or his wife, or there may have been a domestic violence charge against him. You know, police may have been called. And that's a terrible thing on a, in and of itself. But there are a lot of domestic, there's a lot of domestic violence in this country, and to sort of assume then that that then becomes a predictor of one of the small number of people who's going to become a terrorist or a mass shooter is obviously overbroad. 
But that's exactly the kind of analysis that people engage in when they try and figure out what this, these signs of radicalization are. The second, which is kind of intimately linked to it, relates to ideology, right? There's a kind of assumption that bad ideas lead to bad acts. There's like a causality between somebody who believes something that you and I may find radical or outside the means, mainstream, and that's going to lead them to become a terrorist. So that leads to this situation where a lot of the so-called signs of radicalization are basically ideological. And when you look at the kinds of the programs that have been financed under CVE grants in the United States, um, you'll sort of get a, a sort of a sample of the kinds of things that they think are problematic. So, and I'm just going to throw out a few examples here. Like, you know, if you have concerns about human rights violations in the Middle East, uh, if you're worried about the direction of U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, which I think like pretty much everybody in this room would raise their hand if they were asked that question. Um, but th so they're very broad, very malleable concepts. But these are, and this comes to the, the other problematic part, have been applied almost exclusively under the Obama administration to Muslim populations. So you now have this situation where kind of normal First Amendment protected views become signs among this particular population that they are going to be the next terrorists. I mean, the problems there are pretty obvious. Um, there's a whole set of issues around um, internet uh, monitoring and social media, which I, I won't get into because I want to stay focused on this a little bit. But I wanted to bring us sort of into the Trump administration, right? And, and sort of Pat referred to this a little bit in his introduction. And I think there's two things that one needs to be thinking about. One is this infrastructure was set up under Obama, okay? It's in place. And these ideas have kind of seeped into the policy discourse. Um, I don't think that it is a, a concept that is easily um, divide that, that doesn't easily divide amongst Republicans and Democrats. I mean, you have a, 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 you have a fair number of uh, people who are otherwise progressive who kind of buy into this concept as well, and I think they do so. Um, at least in part, uh, out of good intentions. And I think a lot of people who work in the CVE space are actually well-intentioned and are actually trying to do something that is helpful. Um, but they are not, I think, sufficiently weighting the risks that CVE poses, particularly to Muslim communities. Because it's all very well to say we're going to do this you know, kinder, gentler version of intervention because it's a replacement to, you know, over-aggressive um, prosecutions, to mass surveillance, to using, putting informants in these communities. But it's not an or-or proposition. It's an and-and proposition. Both these things are going on at the same time. And the kind of soft surveillance that's enabled by CVE actually, in my view, feeds into these, um, these counterterrorism measures, which are often seen as being too aggressive. So fast forward to the Trump administration, and here you have, and I think I'm on safe ground in saying this, um, an administration that is overtly anti-Muslim. I mean, whatever you may say about Obama, you know, he wasn't overtly anti-Muslim. And people have become much more sensitive to the risks that CVE poses. And we've seen this particularly at the community level, where community groups that had applied for funding for CVE because they thought as a way to, you know, do their good social programs on the ground 
are now really suspicious and have pulled back and said, we don't want your CVE money. Of course, the administration doesn't really want to give them the CVE money, so that seems to have worked out pretty well for everybody. Um, but there's been a lot of um, discussion about one particular grant which the Trump administration has withdrawn and which uh, was to this group called Life After Hate. And the reason that this became, became such an issue was because the popular narrative that was sort of playing out in the media was, well, you know, the Obama administration's CVE program was targeted at all kinds of violent extremism. It wasn't only about Muslims. Look, it doesn't even talk about Muslims. It doesn't even say radical Islamic terrorism, for God's sakes. Which right? Is, I should point out, which is not actually true if you look at some of the specific documents on the DHS website, but go, yeah. go ahead. But, but that was, that's the sort of prevailing kind of notion, right? And so, and when, the, when DHS pulled the funding for Life After Hate, that's the one group that you know, has uh, traditionally worked with neo-Nazis. Um, there was a lot of concern that this was you know, showing us as if we needed to know that the Trump administration was only going to be focusing on Muslim terrorism and was going to be ignoring um, uh, violence from the far right. It then came out, and it took a long time for this to come out, that in fact the grant proposal from Life After Hate, which is a group that has done some really excellent work helping self-identified um, neo-Nazis and the like disengage from those movements, right? But the grant proposal that they actually put into DHS was for both uh, you know, right-wing and anti-Muslim. So you have this kind of situation where, you know, all of these things kind of get jumbled up and people really are very quick to rush to judgment without kind of digging into what the programs are actually doing. And I've been talking too long, but I want to end with just one point, which is on this issue, and I think obviously in the wake of Las Vegas, these issues, I mean, we know very little whether this gentleman had any kind of, you know, white supremacist or neo-Nazi ideology. We just don't know at this point what his motivation were, but there's been a, a quick jump to that uh, in the press at least and even among some um, pundits, I guess. Uh, and the point though that I want to make is this, which is when you think about CVE, think about it this way. You have basically these programs of different kinds that are going into communities, right? And they're going into groups of people who, as far as we know, have no link to criminality. There's no suspicion that this particular group has done anything wrong. They're going into regular Muslim communities around the country and saying, hey, watch out in case your son is becoming a terrorist. And these are the, like, the 10 things you should be looking for. Right Now, transpose that into the majority population and imagine for a moment that the FBI or DHS or whoever was going out into communities across the country, maybe in more religiously conservative areas where there tends to be uh, more uh, of an affinity for some, for white supremacists or neo-Nazi groups. I, I mean, I'm not saying it's caused by religiosity, please, but you can... They're going out there, and they're going to churches, and they're going to community centers, and they're like, hey, you know, you better be careful that your son isn't turning into a neo-Nazi, and these are the 10 things you should be looking for. It is an unimaginable scenario, and I think that contrast is what shows you the sort of fundamental problem with CVE.
Pfizer, thank you. I want to transition now to Dr. Ellis, who is going to uh, talk to us about <clears throat> some of the community programs that she has been involved with and kind of also the, the overarching uh, concerns that I think she has about some of these approaches. Dr. Ellis. putting this panel together. Um, really wonderful to be here with such company and be able to think about these issues. And particularly, I want to share about preventing violence, um, an approach that we've been taking uh, using a community partnership to develop a multidisciplinary team for individual and community resilience. So let's just start with this idea of preventing violent radicalization. There are a few challenges to this idea. <clears throat> There's no root cause or single pathway that has been identified. There's no profile or set of characteristics that predict who will radicalize to violence. Um, some people have pointed towards factors that may create vulnerabilities, such as perceived grievance, social marginalization, but these are very commonly experienced things. Um, they are in no way deterministic, and in fact, for some, these experiences lead to profoundly positive change. So can't really use that to say um, who, do, who we should be concerned about. And religion, race, ethnicity, refugee status do not predict vulnerability to radicalization in any way, shape, or form. So I'm an interventionist. I look at this. How do you prevent a problem that is multiply determined by risk factors that are abundantly common and not deterministic, and that occurs at such a low base rate that even the very best predictive test, something that's 99% accurate, would yield unacceptably high false positive rates. We are nowhere near having an accurate way of assessing who might be at risk, but even if we did, it would be almost impossible to use that without um, misidentifying people. So I think we have more clarity now about what not to do than about what we should do. But here's what not to do. We know that targeting programs towards specific groups based on ethnicity or religion unfairly stigmatizes that group. If that group is Muslim Americans, as we've been hearing about, then it also ignores data about the fact that other groups, such as white supremacists, have been responsible for more deaths in the US over the last decade. And programs that are stigmatizing and unfair only serve to undermine trust and partnerships. So in many ways, we can make matters worse for ourselves. So if you can't identify a group to, to focus prevention towards, what remains to be done? In my mind, there are then two options, and I'm not saying these are both good options, just what's left. One, come up with a perfect way of identifying individuals who might radicalize to violence. There's no indication that we ever will achieve that kind of clarity. So the second option is instead of individual or specific groups, take a whole community approach. Build whole community resilience in a way that both diminishes potential risk factors for radicalization to violence and strengthens community response if it occurs. So what does it mean <clears throat> to be a resilient community? And I borrow here from much of the research that's been done in relation to disaster preparedness. Resilient communities 
are characterized by strong social connection. There are three types of connection that are talked about. One is <clears throat> social bonding, so connection to one's own community or people who are similar to you in some important way. Social bridging is connection, connections to a larger community, to diverse others, people who are unlike you in some important way, but with whom you have a connection nonetheless. And finally, social linking, which is around connections to systems, the sort of larger system in which communities are embedded, schools, community uh, services, et cetera. So how do we do this? Um, there are many examples on the ground of, of cities who are working to become more resilient. Um, in Boston, our team called together a group of uh, leaders from different communities, service sectors. We came together and said, we seem to have a lot of services in this town. That's a blessing. On the other hand, it seems like we also have a lot of youth who are ending up in a criminal justice system. It doesn't seem to be working for them. What's going wrong? What are we missing? And together, from the ground up, we started talking about what seemed to be missing. So we pulled together religious leaders, interfaith religious leaders, community leaders, law enforcement educators, mental health providers. And together, we crafted a program that we felt like could reduce violence, reduce engagement in criminal justice systems, and really promote more resilient youth and more resilient communities where we worked together. First, let me tell you what our program is not. We are not a CBE program. Our umbrella is broadly about preventing violence and criminal justice involvement. We are not a program that targets a specific ethnic, religious, or cultural group. Such a narrow focus can create what have been termed suspect communities that do more harm than good. We are not direct service providers. Our goal is to facilitate connection to existing services and to build the capacity of those services to better serve a diverse group of youth in need. And we are not a top-down operation. Our mission and operations are driven by community partners and the needs they have identified. So what we are trying to do through our pilot project is to prevent violence through connection, engagement, and genuine partnerships. There are three aspects to what we're doing. The first is, if anyone around the table has concern about a youth that they work with, and again, this is a broad concern, not a single concern that they might be bringing, then we think together about um, how we can outreach to that youth and family, think about what they see as primary concerns that they'd like to see changed in their life, and think about a very broad range of services, maybe mentorship, maybe thinking about the school placement and what's going on, um, and how to connect the family and youth to those services. At the same time, there's an acknowledgment that those services have in some way failed that youth and family thus far. They have not engaged the youth and family or have not been helpful. And so we need to think about those services. And we provide support and consultation to providers about particular cultural or social issues that may allow them to, to provide more relevant and helpful care. And we link those services together so that instead of uh, youth being served in silos that don't communicate, we begin to build a socially connected network of services. And finally, the process by which we do this all, um, I think, is the most important part, and that we do this through 
um, really becoming genuine partners across disciplines, across service sectors, and across communities so that we have a trusting relationship that together we're working to build more resilient youth. Thank you. Dr. Ellis, thank you very much. And we'll finish off with Dr. Le Cicero. Yeah, you're... Thanks to the Cato Institute for inviting me, and, and thanks to all of you for, for being here. Um, for my remarks, I am going to focus on the involvement of social science researchers, service providers in education, medicine, and mental health in CVE programs. Okay. I've had the luxury, as, uh, as Patrick said earlier, of being the visiting, a visiting scholar at the Wright Institute for the past year. Um, and in that year, uh, I appreciate the Wright Institute for being my academic home base, but my comments, by the way, do not reflect the perspective of the Wright Institute particularly or of the um, uh, Society for the Study of Peace and Conflict or certainly not of APA, etc. <laughs> so, but I've had the luxury of, of being able to contemplate and to reflect on uh, my long career and on the profession. Sure, thank you and on the uh, profession of psychology and in particular, but linked professions in general, and to really try to understand what we are doing in larger and larger frames. Um, I've been helped in these reflections by having been blessed to work with multiple students, mentors, mentees, colleagues, and peers from a wide range of different backgrounds that are actually uh, very, very diverse, including even very different cosmologies, uh, understanding of how we understand and know about the universe. So that I have a lot of different perspectives to reflect on. Um, this is, of course, reflections, of course, we're also affected and influenced by what's happening in the past uh, year. As for professionals' involvement in countering violent extremism programs, when you first think about it in a regular everyday frame, it consists of very nice, caring professionals uh, in the field of education, medical fields, mental health fields. And um, they're helping parents to guide their kids. It sounds great. And, and in some ways, it is great. Uh, I have no doubt that a lot of the professionals, most of them, maybe all of them, engaged are very nice, caring, well-meaning, competent people. And if the guidance they provided were provided universally to all parents and were provided at the request of parents and were funded, this is important, solely by humanitarian and health organizations and not by Department of Justice, Department of Homeland Security, FBI, law enforcement, if they were funded by humanitarian organizations, it might actually help contribute to progress in youth development. Um, and it might do more good than harm. But as soon as you take a larger frame of reference and look at this work in, in a larger frame, what you see is not so promising. Rather, you see it as another example in a long line of examples of privileged professionals acting as intermediaries 
enforcing government-driven agendas. At best, these agendas are often misguided. At worst, they reflect questionable motives and contribute to less than desirable ends. In this frame, CVE is another example where young men, particularly men of color, are seen as potentially violent, as in need of somehow being controlled. Bluntly, it's another example of government-driven, racially discriminatory programs. Zoom out again, including history in your view, and you can see CVE as another example of a colonial approach, sorry, um, to what is defined as a vulnerable, vulnerable population. Sadly, we providers continue to be told to provide so-called help to people who are actually perfectly capable of solving things on their own terms, if only, if only, we lived up to our American values of justice, fairness, and equal opportunity. If only our leaders pursued a human rights agenda rather than a divide and conquer agenda. Some very clever people engaged in divide and, and conquer agendas have found that if you get nice people, very nice people, to unwittingly apply these agendas by convincing them of their importance, you're apt to be successful in masking what you're actually doing. Um, I thought that probably some people might, <laughs> someone might ask the question, what are some of these other ways that uh, social science and mental health people have collaborated in government-driven agendas in the past? Um, in the distant past, it seems distant, uh, and I, I have just yesterday been to the um, African-American Museum, so it seems a little more dramatic in my uh, thought today that psychologists, or maybe it wasn't psychologists, but mental health people uh, and medical people diagnosed slaves who ran away. There was actually a diagnosis for that called drapedomania, the tendency to run away. Um, we also, uh, our predecessors, uh, participated in boarding schools for Native Americans. Uh, children who were taken to boarding schools in order to kill the Indian to save the man. And that's a quote. Um, in those boarding schools, DDT was applied to the Indians to make sure that they, any um, pathogens that they might have followed them from the, their uh, tribal areas were destroyed and very nearly destroyed the young people as well. We also engaged in um, helping create, apply, and consult to interrogators who were applying enhanced interrogation techniques which amount to torture. Psychologists also um, diagnosed women in the post-war era in the US um, as being ill and neurotic if they weren't fully satisfied by being mothers and wives. I have a bunch more, but I'm going to just leave those as a few examples. Um, I, I'm a psychologist. I love psychology as a career for me, but I think we all have to begin to step back and look in the larger frame and ask what we're doing and what are the ways that we're doing good and what are the ways that we're doing potential harm. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. LeCicero. I'm going to 
invoke uh, the moderator's privilege here and, and get us underway with some questions uh, in the time that we have um, remaining. I, I want to especially ask uh, our, our clinicians um, this one. Dr. LeCicero, you've just highlighted some of the examples, rather infamous examples from our past where uh, folks uh, in the medical profession, in the mental health profession, have been suborned essentially by federal authorities to engage in, in some of these activities. What is your assessment of your professional societies today in terms of their ability to educate their members on the dangers of things like CVE and the like uh, and their willingness to resist? You want me to comment? Sure, on that? I mean. Um, I, I can only really speak uh, about the American Psychological Association with a great deal of certainty. Um, it, it's poor, I guess I would say. It hasn't failed yet. Uh, it's beginning to uh, recover a little bit from the uh, torture scandal. And there are some small movements towards self-reflection. Um, but there, there's, a, there's an enormous loyalty to military and security agendas within the American Psychological Association, historically and also in contemporary times. And until we really take a, bit, a, a broader look at that, I think we're going to continue to just barely uh, be OK, uh, sort of, uh, but still have lots of pushes and pulls in both directions. I recently wrote a blog about what prevents the American Psychological Association from healing after uh, the torture scandal. Um, it was not well received by the American Psychological Association, but I think I stand behind the things that I said. There are still a lot of things preventing the healing and preventing looking forward. Thank you. Dr. Ellis? You want me to speak to the same question? Yeah, if, if, if you're comfortable doing so. Uh, well, I think you're much more aware of um, the heartbeat of the organization than, than I am. I think. Uh, you know, I think we stand at a, a moment in time where we need to rethink in many ways how do different agencies and institutions work together. Um, and there's been a lot of siloed work. And I think psychologists working in isolation presents its own set of problems. Mm -hmm. I think psychologists collaborating with law enforcement also presents a set of questions and challenges. And so it's going to take a real... Um, stepping back, I think, and looking together at how can we be true to the core mission of what it means to be a psychologist, which is really about helping, and do that in a way, you know, don't do no harm. That, that's the first part. But also doing nothing sometimes is not an acceptable answer either. So how do we think about, I mean, for me, thinking about violence in our, across the country right now, it's just ripping families and communities we need to be thinking together with a little bit more of an interdisciplinary you know, partnership approach around how we can be true to our mission and still advance new ideas to address some of the really critical problems right now. And, and with respect to the pilot program that you've mm -hmm. been uh, so deeply involved in, in the diagram that you had in your presentation, law enforcement mm -hmm. was definitely a part of it. Mm -hmm. What has been your experience dealing with law enforcement uh, at the local and, if necessary, the state level on this issue? Have, have you seen any tensions essentially there? And, and I, think, uh, I think all of us would really like to, to get a better sense of that. 
Yeah, thank you for asking about that, because it's certainly one of the core um, issues that we've thought very carefully about. We, law enforcement was at the table when we had our initial discussions around um, unmet needs of youth in our community. Um, once we agreed to work together as a team, we had a series of uh, thoughtful conversations around what the role of law enforcement would be. And what we mutually agreed upon, and by this is local law enforcement, Boston Police, Cambridge Police, what we mutually agreed upon was that um, it was important to have law enforcement in the room partly because they were trying to uh, bring youth to the table who they would prefer not to have involved in the criminal justice system, and they saw our team as a potential um, way to, to prevent that. Um, so they wanted to be at the table for that, but they also understood that we could not be a conduit of information back to them, and so we have an agreement that they can leave the room at any point for discussions that we're having, um, and that we do not need to share information back to them. Have, have you ever, and I'll direct this to both of our clinicians, have either of you in the course of your practice ever been contacted by law enforcement or felt any direct pressure by law enforcement to compromise patient confidentiality in the name of counterterrorism or national security or any of those kinds of things? And if not, if you don't have personal experience with that, have you had conversations with colleagues who have had that? And again, no need to use names here or anything like that. I'm just trying to get a sense. And the reason I'm driving at this is I want to talk about uh, something specific that our friends at the FBI attempted to do a couple of years ago, but I, I just want to kind of put that out there to begin with. Well, maybe I've been exceedingly lucky in who my law enforcement partners are. Um, we work, for instance, with the Cambridge Safety Net Program, um, as well as the community policing through Boston Police. So our partnerships really are based more in community policing to begin with, and I have not had the experience where I felt pressured and, and partners that I work with have not discussed that with me. I, uh, I recently moved from the East Coast to the West Coast and um, had to study the law and ethics uh, part of the psychology exam for the state of California. And uh, I was reading the um, preparatory materials, and I came across a paragraph that I had to read about six times, and then I had to ask some of my colleagues who are ethics experts about it said, if as a clinician, one of the conditions of breaching confidentiality is if, now this booklet said, if you are asked by the FBI for information about a client, you must breach confidentiality, give the information to the FBI, and you may not tell your client or anyone else that you have done so. Um, I was pretty shocked. Uh, it turns out it's not only psychologists, also um, physicians and other medical people. Um, the organizations that uh, uh, for mental health people got together and did get some softening of this. It was part of the USA Patriot Act. I think it's Section 215. You guys know the numbers better than I do. But um, uh, it's there. Uh, if I had been contacted, I couldn't tell you. Okay, And if anybody of my colleagues had been contacted, I wouldn't know. Um, this is a big problem. It's one more of these problems of framing. Uh, and I will say that the ethicists within mental health organizations are just stumped. Uh, and the, there is a thought, which I probably agree with, that one would have to terminate with a client if, if, if one were asked for this information. Uh, and if the uh, conditions were met, the organizations made some conditions to have to be met before a 
uh, information could be given. But it's a, it's, it's a potential problem lurking out there, um, and um, I think it has to be addressed. The reason I bring this up is because a couple of years ago, uh, the FBI began a process of trying to outreach uh, to folks in your profession and in other professions, including the educational sector and others, around the country for something they term the so-called Shared Responsibility Committees, or SRCs. And what the FBI was basically looking to do was to try to get folks involved in their own uh, de facto so-called community-based CVE programs. What was interesting, and, and we have to give uh, uh, credit to uh, Arjun Sethi, among others, uh, of the C Coalition for uh, getting his hands on these documents uh, and, and revealing all of this, uh, actually ran in a couple of pieces in The Intercept over the course of the last two years or so. And what's disturbing about the FBI's effort there is that it's an attempt, essentially, to go even beyond the Patriot Act's requirements here. They wanted folks who were going to be involved in these so-called SRCs to sign very explicit non-disclosure agreements whereby they would not disclose their very involvement uh, in these SRCs uh, to anyone. And I think those of us who've looked at these documents uh, carefully and kind of thought this through really understand that this was an attempt by the FBI to kind of recreate uh, something along the lines of COINTELPRO uh, from, the, from the Hoover era, essentially. And I think, it, for me at least, it gets to this heart of the lack of accountability uh, of our national security establishment, and particularly the FBI, with regards to these kinds of programs. Uh, we're dealing with a situation now where if we want to actually try to have a chance of having these kinds of programs that Dr. LeCicero and Dr. Ellis have discussed, have a, have a real opportunity to be effective at the local level. We can't have federal authorities, whether they're at FBI or DHS, trying to turn mental health prote uh, practitioners, educators, and so on and so forth uh, into spies, into informants. And yet that's exactly what these kinds of programs essentially are designed to do. And it, it gets back to, I think, what Faisa, you talked about earlier, which is kind of the underlying <clears throat> worldview and assumptions uh, that kind of guide these programs. And I do think that as a society, we have to kind of take some responsibility here, right? I mean, after the 9-11 attacks, the only thing I think the vast majority of Americans wanted was revenge. Um, that's, a, as far as I'm concerned, that's a totally understandable emotion. It's a completely understandable reaction to the largest loss of life on U.S. soil from a foreign action since Pearl Harbor. But that's usually when really bad decisions wind up getting made, is in the heat of the moment. We're now more than 16 years after those events, and we are still having discussions like this today about how to try to, to rein this stuff in. And I will be candid in that I struggle on a day-to-day -day basis to kind of figure out exactly how to roll this stuff back. You know, we have organizations like FISA's, the ACLU, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, Demand Progress, FreedomWorks, <laughs> Fight for the People. I mean, we have folks on both sides, essentially, of the political aisle here, primarily from the progressive and the libertarian community, I will say, 
who've really been sounding the alarm on this kind of stuff. And I know I struggle with, you know, what is the solution here? I, I, I think that there are some things that could be done, you know, outside of kind of a traditional 501c3 or 501c4 uh, advocacy framework. I can't get into details about that um, because of uh, where we are uh, here at the Cato Institute and the fact that we are a C3 and we cannot engage in, you know, direct advocacy. But what I would say is that in the past, at least, it's only been through that kind of advocacy that we have seen, you know, changes. When, when, the, when the original revelations about um, uh, domestic spying, including COINTELPRO and some related programs, finally began to come out in the early 1970s, it did create a groundswell uh, of public opinion. Uh, that finally did lead to the creation of the church committees and the passage of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act itself. But we're now 40 years past those events, and we are 16 years past 9-11, as I said, and it seems like the wheel needs to turn again. So do any of you have any thoughts about the kinds of things that need to happen in order to begin to, to rein this stuff in? I'll, I'll open it up to anybody who wants to jump in first here. <laughs> I just want to suggest if people don't, in case there's someone who does not know about COINTELPRO, uh, a couple of years ago, a book and film came out. The book is called The Burglary, and the film is called, 19, it's a documentary called 1971. Uh, the book is written by the reporter who broke the story. Uh, the documentary is about the individuals who who burglarized an FBI headquarters to get um, thousands of documents. Of course, that would be, it was in 1970, so it was a very different era. We wouldn't break into the FBI office now to get documents, but they got thousands of documents in order to demonstrate what they thought as they were uh, activists, what they thought was going on, and they turned out they were correct. But they put themselves at grave risk by doing that. I think there's also the COINTEL, the materials are online. So anybody can look up. You can look up what happened in your hometown through the FBI's COINTELPRO efforts. Um, my colleague, Justin Sinclair, and I did some research on fear of terrorism. I think security is another thing besides revenge that people are very, uh, were very interested and continue to be interested in. And one of the things we found is that trust in government goes along with fear of terrorism. Um, I can't say for sure what the causality is because we just found a, uh, we found correlations, correlational uh, data, but I do know that fear of terrorism is major and it's used and it's I call it terrorism hysteria because it's really out of whack with the actual the actual danger, but it can be used um, and is used to foster uh, a, a whole lot of um, ends that the. Uh, politicians would like to foster. So if we're afraid of terrorism, we're probably going to be happier to fund the military and happier to fund uh, a lot of things that politicians would like to see funded. Um, so uh, that's, I think we really have to, again, dig deep, take the bigger frame, look at what's going on, who's benefiting from this fear of terrorism and from the wish for revenge. My colleague, Mark Pilisuk, wrote a wonderful book um, call, called Who Benefits from Global Violence and War? I recommend it pretty highly, and uh, very highly. Um, 
I'm going to pick up a little bit on, on what, what Alice is talking about here as well, which is, you know, you cannot divorce what's happening domestically in the United States with what's happening internationally, right? And so a lot of times, you know, we the people, those of us who work here on domestic surveillance issues aren't necessarily working um, on the foreign policy side. And I mean, there's some crossover, for example, around drones, et cetera. But, um, there really isn't, a, I think, a sustained engagement. And I do think that that makes a difference. I mean, the reality is that, you know, if you're at war in 10 Muslim countries around the world, it's no surprise that Americans are scared of Muslims. I mean, you know, it just kind of stands to reason. We've seen this happen, you know, before, during World War II. It, it, it's not an unusual phenomenon. So I think it's important for those, those movements to have some linkage over there and to, to kind of see more broadly, you know, what's going on over here. I also think, and this is something which I think is we haven't done and which we need to do, which is we need to do a better job of making people understand why these issues matter to them. And I know it's something that, that you know, places like Cato as well as, as the Brennan Center and, and all of us kind of sort of struggle to do on a pretty much consistent basis, but we still need to do better uh, in terms of not just having, you know, civil liberties and being a kind of elite Washington, New York, maybe, you know, California kind of thing, but something that people feel fundamentally is about them. Um, and I think, for example, you know, some some of the, the movements we've seen that have been uh, coming up in, in this era are important. I mean, the ACLU's efforts to build people power, for example, across the country is a, is a new tactic for them, but I think is an important one. Um, I, and there have been efforts on, on doing this before, so I don't want to suggest that no one's ever tried to do this, but we haven't done it on a big scale. Um, and I think that's one thing that's really important for us to do on a big scale. Dr. Ellis? Okay. I'm happy to move on to the next question if you'd like. And I think we should do that. We have a few minutes left here uh, for some questions uh, from the audience. Um, the gentleman here in the, the front row, if you'll wait just one second, we're going to give you a mic. My question is to Ms. Patel. I'm a big fan of your work. I make all my <laughs> students read it. Having said that, <laughs> I think that every time there is an act of violence by a Muslim in America, it contributes to Islamophobia and further undermines the civil rights of Muslims everywhere. They become targets for hate crimes, etc. So as a Muslim, I am deeply committed to ensuring that such acts don't happen, especially the shooting in San Bernardino or something like the Orlando thing. So accepting all your criticisms of CVE is valid. If President Trump, for some weird reason, has one moment of sanity and invites you to the White House and says, Ms. Patel, I take all your criticism of CVE. Now tell me what I should do. Should we do anything at all? Or like Bill O'Reilly says, Las Vegas is a price of liberty. Should we just get used to a degree of violence by Muslims also in the Western countries and in the US? Or should we do something to prevent violence by Muslims 
in the US. What could you recommend? I'm going to give you two answers, which are slightly in tension with each other. Um, so the, the first one is, I think I would say, is that the government, the federal government, but also at the state and local level, needs to always place ideologically motivated violence, whether by Muslims or by the far right, in context, okay? We have roughly, and I'm going to talk about gun statistics because they're at the top of my head right now, 15,000 gun, we have 15,000 homicides, sorry, in the United States. We have something like, I think, 83 or 93 gun deaths every single day, okay? Compare that to ideologically motivated violence. No matter how broadly you define it, you're going to be at, I don't know, what do you think, Patrick? Like, 300 a year maximum? That would probably be an outside figure. Yeah, maximum. So let's just have, I mean, I think I'm really important, I'm being maximalist here, Uh, but let's just have a sort of understanding of context, right? And we never, ever do. We never, ever do. No politician, no leader gets up there and says, look, this is a terrible, terrible thing that's happened, and I understand the human tragedy, I understand the shock, the horror, the impact. But remember also, these longer-term persistent problems are actually the ones that we as a society need to be addressing. I mean, that's probably true across lots of different areas, but certainly in this context. So I think that's one thing I would do. And I feel like Obama was sort of starting to reach for it uh, towards the end of his administration. Um, But, you know, he was a fake Muslim, so he was a little bit hampered by going too far out on a limb on that one. Um, But I think, actually, someone like Trump is actually perfectly suited to do something like that, to make that point, given sort of his history uh, in that sense. The second thing I would do, say, is sort of going back to the physician's uh, formula of first do no harm, which is a lot of times people who I talk to who are very much in favor of some type of CVE thing is like, but what are we supposed to do, you know? And so they will say, you know, Seamus Hughes, for example, will say, well, you know, if the father of some teenage boy calls me up and he says, look, my son is watching ISIS videos, I'm really afraid, what am, what am I supposed to do, right? That's a very compelling and difficult question. Um, And one, I suppose, that needs individualized, tailored answers. And that's why I think I'm kind of really impressed with some of the work you do, which is high-intensity work, right? It's individualized. It's focused. You're looking, you know, in in very great depth at particular individuals and their problems. But one-size-fits-all solutions of CVE aren't going to solve those individualized things. And the last thing, so, so what can? I think better access to mental health care and to uh, counseling and to all, all the kinds of things that we as a society are basically not willing to pay for would be helpful. Um, and then the third thing I would say is focus on violence, right? And instead of focusing on ideology. So terrorism has two components always, right? There's ideology and there's violence, okay? But we generally focus on the ideology because 
maybe it's not actually that much easier to get at, but it's more expressed, right? So it, you see it a lot more. It's a lot scarier for a lot of people in some ways. You know, when you look at these kind of alien concepts, jihad, salafi, et cetera, et cetera, people are like, oh my God, that's frightening. And they start focusing on that. But focusing on actually preventing violence, I think, would get us a really long way towards preventing mm -hmm. terrorism. And then I suppose one could talk about, you know, gun safety, um, and that's, a, you know, a potential avenue. I, you know, I'm a, a big proponent of gun safety laws myself. I do get a little disturbed by the debate around every one of these mass shootings because, you know, it, it's not clear to me that, that those two issues are linked, but I guess it gives a good jumping point to talk about these things. Other thoughts from the panel? I think um, we have... If, Go ahead, please. Yeah, if I may say, I think, I think it's a really important question that you raise. Um, and in my research, I, I repeatedly, discrimination is linked to all sorts of um, worse problems for youth as they're developing. And so we, we, need, to, we need to make sure that, um, that the single act of violence of you know, one individual doesn't end up affecting a whole community. And unfortunately, because of lopsided media coverage, because of the kind of frame that is repeatedly brought out around um, any kind of violence that is committed by a Muslim, we're, we're in this predicament where a whole community suffers when one individual makes a choice. And when someone in uh, Las Vegas does something, you know, no one's looking at me and saying, well, you're white. So how do we how do we shift that? And I think you know part of the reason I came into this work was because I've worked very very closely with Somali communities for years now, and I was um, really struck by how deeply affected seventh graders in Boston public schools were when an adolescent in Minneapolis who was Somali went to join Al Shabaab, and that didn't seem fair or right. And we needed to be thinking both about school climate and resilient communities where there's more acceptance and, and understanding. And I think we also need to be thinking about violence prevention writ large yeah. so that fewer and fewer violent incidences happen, period, and there's not that backlash afterwards. Yeah, I um, just want to add that uh, yesterday, as I said, I mentioned I spent some time in the African American Museum, especially on the um, uh, historical section, and I noticed many, many statements by uh, prominent white landowners saying, you know, slavery's wrong, we know it's awful, but what can we do? We need it for the economy. And I feel like we're doing something like that now, and we need to ask ourselves, what are we saying that about? Yes, it would take very, very huge changes. Um, it would take, probably, it would take um, a, a massive kind of uh, a change in, in, our, uh, in, in the U.S. perspective, and we probably have to end our wars, and we have to uh, be very uh, true to our American values, uh, which we have not been in many. So I think to say, you know, well, what can we do? This, this, uh, we, we have to ask ourselves, what are we saying that about? You know, and, and, and if it's going to take something radical, let's do it. It may take something very, very huge. We have exceeded our time quotient here, unfortunately. I've already eaten into my colleague Adam Bates's time just a little bit. Adam, I apologize. Heidi Ellis, Alice Cicero, Pfizer Patel, thank you so much for your insights uh, and joining us today. We will uh, have a brief change out here and then we'll get underway with our second panel. <laughs>